Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, May 8th, and we're talking tech and mailbag questions. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool Premium Analyst Joey Salitro. Joey, it's been a while, man. How you doing? It's been a very long time. I've been waiting for this moment. I've just been waiting for you to slack me asking if I'd be on another show because I'm finally back from paternity leave and just ready to answer some questions. Yeah, you've had a you've had an interesting 2020, huh? <laughs> Everything that's Listen, going on in the world and then you also, you know, welcome uh, another member of the family. I was trying to tell everybody on Slack, like, I'm sorry, the market is tanking because I'm gone, but I will be back on March 23rd. <laughs> and I mean, I was joking the whole time, or was I? But market bottoms on March 23rd, I'm back. And then it's, it's like, hey, we're ready to rage. Let's do this. <laughs> I love it. Um, and, and we are going to be talking some questions that we've gotten from listeners today. And some of these touching on companies uh, that you know quite well. So I had to have you on. And really, I just, I love chatting with you, Joey. I, you know, it'd been way too long. We haven't seen each other in months. We haven't talked in uh, probably six weeks at this point. So happy to make it happen. Oh, yeah. I'm ready. Let's do this. All right. So we're in the mailbag. And our first question is from David. And he wrote in to industryfocus at fool.com. You can always write there if you want to shoot us questions or comments about the show. David asks, uh, I was wondering how you think about individual stocks that align to a broad thesis versus an ETF that represents the same thesis with a larger portfolio of holdings. For example, having watched as cloud security has moved from the IT pages to the front page of the news, love that phrasing there, David, as hacks have shifted from isolated security breaches to takeovers of municipal infrastructure, I've bought shares of CrowdStrike, Fortinet, and Cloudflare. I'm now wondering, however, whether at three companies in the space, I'm better off just buying an ETF and not worrying about the individual stocks. I know there are no hard and fast rules for any of this, but any perspective would be helpful. Uh, this is an awesome question because you know I think when you start buying multiple stocks in the same space, you're you're basically creating your own ETF, Joey. Yeah, exactly. So I, I love this question because I think it's one that a lot of people think about. Like, I don't know how to invest in cybersecurity best. Should I buy this? In in David's case, I would say absolutely do not buy an ETF because you have three great picks that you're talking about right here with CrowdStrike, Fortinet, and Cloudflare. Now, if it's something that you know absolutely nothing about, don't even know where to start, like me with biotech and wanting to buy like the IBB or something like that, it would make sense. But if you can dig deep into those ETFs, see what the largest holdings are, do some research on those companies, you can f usually find the companies that you really want to own or that interest you the most to kind of create your own David ETF. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. It reminds me of what Jason Moser does with his baskets. You know, he's got the uh, the war on cash basket that he talks about all the time uh, on the Monday episode of Industry Focus, and that's you know Visa, Mastercard, PayPal, and Square. I think, um, and you know, there are a lot of other companies that are playing into the theme of cashless society, more and more payments going digital. But I think with these pretty tight baskets that Jason tends to focus on, I think he has one that's called healthcare and wealth care as well. Um, they tend to be small. They're only about four or five stocks. And uh, I think that what we're seeing here with this question from David, he's looking at a couple specific companies. Jason has the same approach because when you buy an ETF, you're not just getting a handful of companies. Very often, you're getting dozens of companies in that ETF. Exactly. So, 
where I like to say, if you can buy three or four companies, you really only need one of those to be those home runs that outweighs the rest. But if you buy an ETF, I mean, yeah, you're, you've got dozens of companies in there. You could have one of those that returns 10,000% over a couple of years, but that ETF might not do much because others are going to come down like the value plays. So when I'm thinking cybersecurity, like I own CrowdStrike and absolutely love it because the growth rates are just absurd and it's just the gold standard of cybersecurity right now. So that's the company I want the most exposure to. But if I buy an ETF, I'm getting exposure to companies I have zero interest in, like Palo Alto Networks or something like that. So I kind of want to find the vertical or the specific company with that highest growth rate that I think can generate the most significant returns going forward and having exposure to that. And like you were saying, how Jason Moser has his war on cash, like those are four companies that are just absolute beasts in their space and they can grow for quite a bit of time. So, I mean, that's not even one where you have to worry about having a massive underperformance out of one of them. But yeah, it's all about picking your horse in the race. And if you can't and you kind of like spreading your cash across all of them, yeah, you could win a little bit along the way. But if you want that big winner, I mean, trying to single out the best single opportunity and just pile in. Yeah. And and to use the cybersecurity and cloud security space as kind of an example for other listeners that might be thinking through this with other industries, you know, I, I went and looked and I'm admittedly not super familiar with these ETFs, but the ones that immediately popped up, the First Trust NASDAQ cybersecurity ETF, that is ticker CIBR, and the e, uh, the ETFMG Prime Cybersecurity ETF, and the ticker there is HACK, H-A-C-K. Um, you know, so so the pros we talked about this before, but you know, you're instantly diversified. Uh, if you don't know a space well, you're not going to be wed to one single stock with the outcomes uh, for your money. You know, the cons there though, with an ETF, you're paying expense ratios, and both of these ETFs have uh, 60 basis point expense ratios. So not outrageous, but you are paying for performance. Um, you're also going to have less control over the buying and selling decisions and the allocation. And just to kind of zoom in on allocation, and I think this is an important thing to do with any fund or any ETF you own. You know, David specifically highlighted CrowdStrike, Fortinet, and Cloudflare here. And those are the companies that he wants in on, possibly at more. But with the ETFs I mentioned, they only own Cloudflare and Fortinet, at least as top 10 holdings. Um, I do not see CrowdStrike in their top 10 holdings. And those two stocks are only about 7% of the portfolio. And so you're getting exposure to a lot of other companies, companies like Cisco, Splunk, Ping, Tenable, um, which, you know, if, if you don't want all of your eggs in one basket, it might be a good thing, but you aren't going to get nearly as concentrated benefits uh, from, you know, CrowdStrike winning big because I think it's only about 4% of those ETFs. And so no matter what you're doing, uh, you know, whether you're investing in ETFs, investing in mutual funds, considering it, it's always helpful to look at what's actually owned in there and the allocations because that's really what's going to determine your returns, Joey. Exactly. And I always like looking at those top 10 holdings, but usually, so say you took these and then you look at the full portfolios of these and yeah, you're talking 30, 40 companies, even like if you pull up an, an e-commerce basket because you want exposure to the best e-commerce. Well, yeah, you could buy Amazon, Mercado Libre, uh, C Limited and those guys, or you can buy this basket and have exposure to a bunch of companies you might not know anything about. So yeah, where ETFs have their benefits, like if you have absolutely zero time to research any stocks, but you think cybersecurity is going to be the absolute best industry over the next decade, then hey, ETFs have at it and uh, I'd bless that. But if you have the time to dig down or if you're like David and actually know about companies like CrowdStrike and uh, Cloudflare, then 
that's where I'd want to put my money. Yeah. And if you're trying to go the approach of creating your own small baskets, you can look at the holdings for those ETFs and use that as a starter, you know, and say, all right, well, this is going to be my research list. I see that these are the top 10 in this thematic ETF and start there. Um, but, you know, you don't necessarily need to just buy the ETF. Yeah. Not having CrowdStrike in, in the top 10 of that one, that just that's disappointing on my, at least in my opinion, like Cisco. <laughs> I don't consider them cybersecurity at all. Like, yeah, they might have a few wings of it, but they do so much. Um, Splunk, yeah, that has a lot of cybersecurity to it, but there's a lot of data analytics to go with it. So, not really, not really a pure play cybersecurity where CrowdStrike is just cybersecurity through and through. Yeah, and it's possible. One thing that we didn't mention with ETFs is it's possible that there are rules around what the ETF will own. That prevents it from owning a company like CrowdStrike. You know, this this business has not been public for more than a year, and um, it might be that you know a fund or uh, you know an ETF has decided you know there are certain rules we're going to be following, and we are not going to be picking up shares of anything that hasn't been traded for more than a year or is not fitting within certain market cap requirements, and that might prevent them from owning something that you really really want exposure to. And at the end of the day, I'm a stock picker, so. It's always like the challenge. Like if you want to ask me about an industry, I want to have a specific company. Like I want to pick my horse in the race. So I think that's where I also, I would personally never own an ETF, but that's just me. Um, but like I said, ETFs would be good investment vehicles for a lot of people. So I'm not going to bash them too hard. Yeah. And, and I certainly think if you're just getting started, you don't have any exposure to the market. ETF like a like a broad based ETF that gets you immediately exposure to you know S P 500 or something like that awesome place to start you know like that is you know it's lowering the uh the cost of admission for the market it's making things easier um and and, and so i love them there i think if you're looking thematic though try building your own baskets um very often you're going to be getting better allocation uh to bigger winners because you're going to be starting small and you're going to be focusing with the big players that really truly are dominant Yep, build that David ETF. <laughs> the David Cybersecurity ETF. Uh, our, our second question comes from Marie. Uh, Marie writes in, love the podcast, especially the IF Tech Show. Hey now, look at that. Heck yeah. <laughs> I have a question about positions. For the everyday investor, what's considered a good position? What determines that? I tend to buy no more than a handful of shares at a time if I can swing it. Is that good or too little? If the price is right, is swinging for, say, 10 shares okay, or is that too much at once, no matter the share price? Um, and, and this really, Joey, kind of gets at something that we talk about a lot with folks as they're kind of getting used to uh, the market and buying shares and investing. And that's kind of the difference between number of shares and share price and understanding that one of those is really more important than the other when you're looking at your portfolio. This is a very complex issue, and it's actually perfect timing. My very good friend Lee just opened a brokerage account a couple of weeks back, and he was asking me, you know, how much do I want to put in certain companies? Uh, Giving like asking what I own, sending him watch lists, and it was a six thousand dollar account. And he starts talking, oh, you know, I have ten shares of Roku. Should I get more? I'm thinking, man, wait, hold on. That is a huge, huge portion of your portfolio already because. I mean, Roku is a $130 stock. He's got 10 shares, 1,300 out of 6,000. I'm like, man, that is a huge allocation. So a lot of times I like to push them towards percentage. Like you don't want all your eggs in one basket. So of course, not all your money is going to go into one unless you're just starting out and you buy like the SPY index fund like you were talking about. But if you've got the 6,000, you want to put it across 
you know, 12 companies, maybe that be too much. I always like to use the percentages saying, you know, no more than 10% if you have a portfolio under 10,000. But if it gets bigger, my personal is I'll never really go beyond 5% as that initial injection of cash. But yeah, it, it's always kind of like a percentage game and you got to figure out the number you're putting in and then kind of the risk profile of the companies you have to determine those allocations. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it gets tricky when you're looking at some of the very popular starter stocks, you know, like a company like Amazon, for example. Um, unless you're able to access fractional shares via your brokerage and can get, you know, uh, a third of a share of Amazon or a quarter of a share of Amazon, you're going to be paying, you know, $2,000 for for a share and you look at a $10,000 portfolio and you say, well, okay, this is immediately going to be 23% of my portfolio. Um, sometimes with companies like that, you just need to bite the bullet, buy the shares, but then realize that you should be adding to other positions as you bring new cash in because you already have huge exposure to a company like Amazon. Um, yeah, some people love those concentrated portfolios, but we generally say it's better to kind of spread the bets around a little bit. So, you know, you're going to manage something where you have $5,000 or $100,000 very differently, but you can normalize that a little bit by thinking about things in a way of percentages, like you were saying before, Joey. I think, too, that percentage based approach and the, the mindset of I'm going to buy this multiple times is super important. Because uh, there's there's almost this kind of FOMO to getting started, where you're like, "Whoa, I'm behind the eight ball." You know, I haven't been investing. I got to put my cash to work right now, and you got to start all these positions right now. And often that isn't the best thing to do. It see, and you're kind of speaking to exactly what I've been experiencing the last couple of months. I had a friend in January. He wanted to put a very large number of money in the market, and he's asking me, "Oh, hey, what stocks do you own? How much do you own of each?" And I was I. What I always like to do, I don't like to give friends or family specific picks because you get in the whole thing of, okay, now it's like if the stock goes down, I'm the worst person in the world. All I'll do is I'll screenshot my whole portfolio and say, hey, here's what I own, uh, just using like the CNBC app. Hey, here's all the stocks I own. If you have questions like what they do, feel free to ask me. But it was one of those FOMO, you know, the fear of missing out because the market was pushing all-time highs. I was like, oh yeah, those are all great companies. And it, it was like, oh, I want to get fully invested right away. I'm like, you know, we're we're at all time highs, eleventh year of a bull market, you know, recession's gonna come, you know, within the next five years. Little did I know it was <laughs> six weeks away from just everything hitting the fan and the world coming to an end. Um, but it's one of those where I mean he got fully invested and it was an epic meltdown, and I know he did some selling along the way on the way down, so then the bounce back wasn't as significant as it could be. So yeah, that, that scaling in approach, I always like to say, you know, if you got all this money, just think how hard you work to get it. And you want to be very smart, like buying in thirds is always a great strategy that you'll find all across the pool that people like to do. Because if you love, love, love a company at $50 a share, just because it goes to 55 doesn't mean you missed it. Like, if you think long term, this stock could go up a thousand percent or ten thousand percent, why are you going to fret over ten percent? Like, dollar cost average in, and, and and don't worry about trying to catch the bottom. That's the other thing. Is I was getting all these uh, texts. Oh man, did I miss it? Did I miss it? I'm like, even right now, yes, the market has rallied so hard, but we're still well off of our highs. And even then, trying to look at something based on the highs and lows 
that, that's just a fool's game, lowercase half style. <laughs> like you want to look, where do you think the market's going to be in a hundred years? You might not be, be here for it, but caring about where a stock was three weeks ago and where it was a year ago or like the 52 week high and low chart, like that's just not a game I want to play. I'm focused on where the company's going over the long term and where you'll get the best return on your investment. I like that uh, that philosophy. And actually, I had a very similar conversation with a friend, um, not so much related to stocks, but talking about Roth IRA contributions. And this is in February. And, you know, they were saying like, okay, like, you know, it's a couple, like we're ready to make our Roth contributions because we have some extra cash. Um, should we just put it all in? You know, and I was like, you know, I think it would be better if you took, yeah, you know, I, I forget what the limits are for, for 2020, if it's like 55 or 6,000 or maybe it's 6,500, but you divide that in three and just spread it out over the course of the year because you don't want your cost basis for that one year tied to that one specific point in time. And that's, you know, that, that's what we talk about with diversification. So much of that is often through the lens of what you own, but you also kind of have to think about it in when you bought it. And being able to purchase over time helps you spread that out. You don't have the cost basis tied to one moment in time. And that's why 401ks are so awesome, is because you are buying in, you know, if you're paid every two weeks, you're buying in 24 times over the course of the year. And that means that none of those are going to be at the bottom. None of them are going to be at the top. You know, uh, you're going to be able to have a nice smooth curve for your cost over time, which helps a lot. And it, and it prevents you from making some kind of painful decisions. And speaking exactly into the 401k thing, so, I mean, up until recently, my entire 401k is a single company, which I've told you guys about time and time again, C Limited, just because I think, you know, long term, this company has such a significant growth runway. So ever since I started full time here at The Fool in March of last year, I've been doing a couple hundred bucks. Every paycheck is just going to my 401k and I just buy, you know, eight to 10 more shares of C Limited. Now, of course, that number is going down because the stocks, I think it's doubled since I first started buying it and it just keeps going up. So yeah, my average cost of the stock might be 44 now where that original one was 30 or something. But if I think this stock could go to a $150 billion market cap and it's currently sitting at $35 billion or something like that, then I don't care. Yes, and I'm buying slowly on the way up. If it pulls back, hey, great, I get it on sale. But never really worrying about what price you're getting in at. But then say the market were to absolutely tank and then you get more attractive entry points. And where you're saying, you know, space it out over the course of the year, I have a friend who is like a self-employed realtor and he can make a specific contribution every single year. And I think it's like $9,000. He's like, yeah, I can put 9,000 on this day. And I was like, you think you could space that out to where you maybe make a quarterly contribution because then, you know, get the mark, get some cash to play here and here and here. Cause that'd be a better way to go about it. Especially, I mean, imagine if he could put some to work in the first quarter of this year that would probably quadruple by the time he makes his year-end contribution um, for this year. So yeah, if you can space it out, or if you got a 401k at your fingertips, or a self-directed 401k is always, I, I mean, that's a stock picker in me saying that. But I, I definitely think the whole, you know, put money to work slowly will be the most successful strategy for most investors. And psychologically, it's just such a benefit. You know, if if you look at something and you say, okay, I've got um, ten thousand dollars to invest, and you put uh, three thousand, we'll say, to work at once, and you you buy a handful of companies, and then the market sells off ten percent, 
you still have several thousand dollars that you can go in and look and say, you know what, this is an opportunity. This is a chance to buy up shares at a discount relative to where they were instead of hand wringing and saying, oh boy, you know, uh, I'm stuck here or having to sell on the way down, you know, unfortunately, as some people do. Um, our, our third question for this mailbag actually kind of ties into this concept. So I want to rope it in this conversation, Joey. Uh, this is from Jeff on Twitter. And, and Jeff asked, I understand that winners win and the reason for adding to them. However, I hate increasing my cost basis. How do I deal with that? Uh, any, any, any psychological advice there, Joey? <laughs> okay. So from a guy that bought Etsy at $7.99 and has wanted to add to it so many times, but I don't want to mess up that cost basis because seeing it, you know, seeing that percentage return is so great. Um, one of the tricks that I learned is you can have your cost basis tool on these different platforms. So if you love seeing those beefy returns and want to show them off, you can go into the My Account, go to Cost Basis. You have to go to your unrealized gain and loss because that goes to your current holdings that you haven't, you know, haven't sold. And there's a little plus next to companies that you bought several times. So like I can click on my holding in Pinterest and I see, okay, so my first position is down 15%. Ouch. But because I was smart and bought on the way down and I bought at 1090 was my last purchase, that is up 79.9%. So you can always go across and you can see now that works when the stock's going down. And say Etsy, if I would have been smarter and added to it at 16 and 20 and 24, the same menu you can click on and see, okay, the first time I bought is up 5%. Second time I bought is up 3%, up 1%. So you can kind of see how it goes. I'm even looking at my Roku cost basis. It would have been very smart if I would have just bought and held my original position. It's up 86%, but then it came down a little bit and I bought more. That's up 70%. And I love the stocks still so much today. I was buying on the way up and I bought again at 90 and that's 41%. I bought again at 114, that's 11%. So I, I prefer buying stocks on the way up because it's a great company. It's crushing it. It goes up a little bit more. Buying on the way down is usually stocks go down, you know, uh, consistently over a, a extended period of time for a reason, and that's where it's just like you know the bag's getting heavier, and you don't want to be that bag holder. So like it's kind of like catching a falling knife when it comes to value stocks. Um, but you know, don't don't let that cost basis, I guess become too much like, oh, I want to see that huge gain because there's there's that cost basis tool. Like if you want to show how that first time you bought a company, it's up a thousand percent, you could still access it. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a there's an old axiom, right? Like don't let perfect get in the way of good. And uh, you know, it might be awesome to have a, a slug of stock, you know, a, a small position that's up three hundred percent. but if a the market's up 20% and you have a second position that's also up 80%, that's pretty darn good. It's not perfect, but it's pretty darn good and you would take it uh, as outperformance. You know, there there are also some companies where you know, they're high growth businesses and the one that most immediately comes to mind with me with this is Mercado Libre where, you know, it has been just gangbusters, you know, if you look over the course of 5 years. But if you zoom in and you're looking over the past year, I mean, there's there's a point where shares sold off 
40%. And that is not an isolated incident. If you go back to 2019, shares sold off about 20%, um, almost 30%. And so, you know, there are some big winners over long periods of time that have had a lot of hiccups along the way. And while it can hurt to see you're paying slightly more for something, the advantage of space in those purchases that over time is, you know, there, there are good businesses that miss earnings one quarter and wind up on sale. And it's really nice to be in a position where you can add to them. Exactly. And that's exactly what I was doing with Shopify with my daughter's accounts. Shopify, I mean, I, I absolutely love that company. I think it's going to be the fastest company to reach a trillion dollar market cap from going public. Um, and I mean, that's going to be a long ways away. So uh, maybe we'll have this quote in 30 years when it hits that. But it's one of those where if if I was concerned about um, this, this stock's been on such a huge run over the last five years, I shouldn't buy it for, for my daughters. But I think where will this stock be when they're 20 or 25 when these accounts mature? Buying them 10 shares of Shopify in, in the high 200s might have seemed not like the best move at the time. But that stock, like stocks like that absolutely take off. And now I've got my son, Theodore, where he's got his account. So far, he's only got what Pinterest, C Limited, and Roku in his account. And I just keep thinking like, okay, I need to get him some Shopify. But of course, now the dollar amount's so high, it's like $700 a share. I'm like, okay, well, we'll let some cash build up in his account. But I don't care whether the stock's at 700 when he buys it or 600 or 500 or, I mean, crap, it could be at 1,000 at the rate it's going right now. But it's just, I want to own a, a piece of a very, very good business or a great business that I think could be significantly larger over the long term, and and yeah, don't don't let that don't let that kind of mess up where you're going to be. Yeah, another way to look at it that might be kind of psychologically helpful is, you know, you buy your first position, and you may know a good amount about a company at that point, but you cover a company, you track a company a little bit differently when you have skin in the game. You know, you're going to follow what's going on with that business a lot more intimately and you're going to be a lot more concerned with their quarterly results. Um, if you wind up seeing that, you know, after owning it for some number of quarters, uh, shares are up 20, 30, 40% and you're like, man, you know, yeah, I should have bought more early. The other way to look at it is to say, well, it seems like my original thesis was probably pretty good, uh, and we're seeing that play out over these quarters. And now I'm in a position where, as long as I still see that thesis intact and the numbers are moving the way that I want to, I have a higher conviction in buying this stock. You know, it has proven to me that it is worthy of my dollars. And while I'm paying a little bit more for it, maybe my my level of confidence in it is higher as well. Yeah, and, and seeing that performance over time uh, should help you gain more confidence. Uh, using Mercado Libre as another example, my good friend Jason, he first started investing, didn't have a lot of cash, and I think he bought like two or three shares of Mercado Libre in the 200s, high 200s. And as he would be deploying more cash, he's like, man, Melly has just been crushing it nonstop. I want to buy more. And of course, it was like at, say, 500 a share. And then it runs to like 700, then it comes back down. But he doesn't care about where the swoons are. He's just wise beyond his years, apparently, or just not an emotional investor like a lot of people get. But every time he has capital ready to go, he's like, look, Mercado Libre has just been that that one stock that has constantly crushed it for me. And I always tell him, like, yeah, look, it's still only a, what, $35, $40 billion company right now. If you think this has Amazon-like potential and reach the trillion, like, this is still a very, very tiny company compared to what it could be one day. And I think that's what you kind of got to look at it is 
is this company mature? Is this one that's going to trade sideways over the course of time? Or do I still believe in it so much that I want to own more? And usually for your big winners, the answer will be yes. Yeah. And that, that's why that, that market cap kind of approach can be helpful. You know, it's, it's a lot easier to look at something that's a $1 billion business and say, oh, this, this could become a $10 billion business or a $15 billion business in time than it is to stare at a share price sometimes and say, oh, it's gone up a lot. I don't, you know, like you lose the context for the size of the business and its operations. Um, and so over time, I have tried to look a little bit more and say like, okay, we're looking at some software companies that are sub $2 billion. Are there some examples out there of companies that service similar total addressable markets, but have blossomed into 10, $20 billion companies? Um, and if you can say, yeah, the answer is yes, and, and the financials back it up and the thesis is there, then, you know, it's nice to get shares at 1 billion as a valuation, but if it's going to grow to 20, it's okay to buy them at 5 billion too. Yeah, I, I would say if you look back at the biggest winners over the last 10, 20 years, I would guarantee you, you would have more success buying stocks at their 52-week highs than their 52-week lows. Because most of the time, I mean, David Gardner, he says this quite a bit, but and I, and I believe in it so much, is winners keep on winning. I mean, usually a stock consistently hits 52-week lows for a reason and it continues lower. While those winners, as they keep hitting their 52-week highs, if, if you were to add stocks at their 52-week highs, you'd probably do much better. Yeah. Um, and I love that we got all these questions. I mean, I love the mailbag episodes that we get to do. Um, and, and we do them basically when the mailbag gets full. So, you know, uh, Jeff, David, Marie, I'm, I'm so happy that you guys wrote in with some uh, some thoughts here. Joey and I certainly love taking questions and, and chatting through things. Um, and listeners, if you want us to talk about anything in particular, write in industryfocus.fool.com or you can tweet us at MFIndustryFocus to uh, have that conversation. Um, we also, we, we, we like getting recipes too. We got a we got some smoker recipes. I gave gave a shout out uh, last week for that. But you know you don't always have to write in with stocks. Uh, you can also write in. You know for Austin and Joey, you guys can write in about baseball stuff. They'd love to hear about. Yeah, that. and for Austin, if you could write in some alternative meat smoking uh, directions <laughs> for him to try out, I'm sure he would love that. I'll take a hard yeah. pass on that one. <laughs> I just yeah. want to hear his voice. There it is. <laughs> yeah, and, and we're we're giving love in particular to Tom, who uh, who wrote in with recipes for smoked lamb chops and Mabel smoked salmon, uh, which we'll be giving. I think Austin was going to try the salmon, and I was going to try the lamb chops on the smoker. We'll see when that happens. I got to make sure I can get the cuts of meat for it. But I think there's a company coming out with some alternative crab meat that we could get Austin to try. I don't know about that. Sounds a little weird. You know, you I saw would, that right. It's like an alternative meat crab cake or something like that. I did not see that. Oh, but um, I don't. I, I believe it though. Uh, and yeah. you know, I would I would toss a, a Beyond Meat sausage on the smoker and see how that turns out. I'm, oh, I'm okay that with stuff's that. good. I, I think they're very that. good. Um, I also like the real thing. Uh, so <laughs> I am. I'm not beholden to one or the other. I'm happy to have both. Joey, I know that you're a Beyond Bull. <laughs> hey. Hey, it, it recently joined some services here. Um, I, I want to say I was very early on that one, but I, I saw the light after I tried it. And I think as you see all the issues that these big meat producers are having with COVID just ravaging their plants. And I always look at kind of, I don't really trust a lot of these meat companies with their cleanliness of their facilities. So you see a guy like Ethan Brown, just an ultimate class act and the plant-based is just something I could get behind. And I got to say it, it's worked out well um, 
for anybody sitting around me that was listening and bought that stock. Yeah, we we kind of have the full spectrum here because you are the uh, the Beyond Bull. I'd say I when I grill, I will normally get some Beyond products. And Austin, uh, we we did a YouTube video together about this, and he was not convinced. So uh, a little yeah, bit I saw of everything the opposite here on the show. Of the light. <laughs> I tried it. You saw I the like, darkness. Yeah, I, I don't. I'm not gonna buy this. <laughs> yeah, it's good to have some in the freezer, you know, if you have a, a friend who doesn't eat meat come by. But uh, Austin is not within the total addressable market of Beyond Meat. No, not yet. We'll see. Maybe they, maybe they can get them with crab legs. <laughs> <laughs> on, uh, on that note, Joey, thanks for hopping on today's show, man. Loved answering these questions with you. Always a pleasure. All right, listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of IF. Like I mentioned, you can catch us industryfocus at fool.com via email for our questions, or you can tweet us at MF Industry Focus. Reach us there too. If you want more stuff, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, people in the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Shout out to Austin Morgan for all his work behind the glass today. It's Friday, so you know what that means. We're going to be playing things out with checks and balances by full-time fool Burke and Graffia. For Joey Salitro, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening and fool on. I've got a million dollars. It's hypothetical. Large amount in my bank account. It's parenthetical. The money I'm made of is theoretical. So in theory, I've got it good. My fat wallet is on a diet My balance sheet is lopsided My income statement is keeping silent But let's keep one thing understood I need checks, I need balances Life's a mess with financial challenges Checks and balances When things get tough Do you do it for money Or do you do it for love My cold hard cash Is soft and tropical My deep pockets Are merely topical I hit the big time It was microscopical But don't you get it I am no fool I own a bank I call him Piggy Brought home the bacon, he got a little wiggy Cracked him open, what a pity His inner life was pitiful I need checks, I need balances Life's a mess with financial challenges Checks and balances when things get tough Do you do it for money or do you do it for love? I know a cheapskate always has a headache Trying to get something for free None more wiser is the miser Always lives in misery I'm cashing in on Triple coupons, soup kitchen's calling Saying the soup's on I sing for my supper and get my groove on I still know how to have fun I need checks, I need balances Life's a mess with financial challenges Checks and balances when things get tough Do you do it for money or do you do it for love?
cheapskate always has a headache trying to get something for free none more wiser is the miser always lives in misery I own a bank I call him piggy brought home the bacon he got a little wiggy cracked him open what a pity his inner life was pitiful I need checks I need balances life's a mess with financial challenges checks and balances when things get tough do you do it for 